Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. And good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kayla, and uh, very, very interesting guest that we're going to be speaking to today. You know, in the past, I've had I've had friends, often young people, who have had strokes, um, from minor strokes to absolutely major and devastating, um, which became fatal shortly afterwards. And uh, last week, in case you missed it was International Stroke Week. I think it was International Stroke Day last Monday. Yes. And um, so we've invited into studio Dr. Pradeep, Pradeep Rauji. He's a neurosurgeon. He's a neurologist. neurologist. What's the difference? I don't cut. I'm a smooth operator. Are you the smooth <laughs> operator? You're the guy that we want to see. Okay, good. Um, he's, a, he's a neurologist at Mill Park Hospital and also Dr. Bianca Mentour. She's a medical doctor and uh, she's got a number of projects that she works on. And I want to find out what Netcare is doing for, uh, for stroke for stroke awareness, for stroke victims, for rehabilitation. We're going to get all the stats. We're going to get the new, the uh, the numbers. So uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you very, very much. Morning. Thank you for having us, and good morning to all your listeners. Morning, and thank you again, and thank you to all the listeners for sharing our time with us. Dr. Raji, what happens in the body when somebody has a stroke? So there's a there's a couple of types of strokes, as you know. So the, the Actually, young I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let me start by saying that there's a couple of types of strokes, but the two major types that we always talk about are the ischemic type, where there's a cutoff of blood supply to the brain, and the second type is a hemorrhagic type, okay. where there's a bleed into the brain, brain because of a vascular structural abnormality, either around the brain or in, into the actual substance of the brain. So which is the more common? So the ischemic stroke, which is the much more common type, makes up about 80 to 85% of, of the stroke types. That's the blockage. A blockage, yeah. And what, is, what causes that blockage? So there's usually a clot sitting downstream. So the blood supply, as you know, comes from the heart. Yes. And so the heart is a, a very common source of, of embolic, embolic source of uh, clot. And then the major arteries. And the two major arteries are your anterior circulatory arteries, which are the internal carotid arteries, and at the back, the vertebral arteries. So those are the other sources where you get fatty accumulation, rupture of the fat plaque, and with that clot formation, and then the clot obviously travels as the heart beats with the pulsatile force of of the blood pressure. This is all cholesterol. Related cholesterol is, it, is, the, is the cholesterol the, fat. Yeah, so cholesterol is the the, mo, the the mountain that that kind of shears, almost like an eruption in in a volcanic eruption. Yes, and as it erupts, there forms a whole lot of clot material, and with that clot material goes the clot. That is, this is a whole new. <laughs> I've, I've actually never heard that cholesterol is linked to stroke. You know, one one thinks you know, you know you hear shot a clot. <laughs> you yeah. know, kind of in my mind, I envisioned a blood clot of of sorts that for some reason was a clot. So, so the, the clot forms on the cholesterol deposit. So if yes. you think about a heart attack, and the heart attack is road works on the road, right? So there's congestion. And then as you drive, all that dirt goes with it. So it's exactly the same sort of phenomenon. So the cholesterol forms a little blockade, and then the cholesterol cap comes off or the cap of the of the artery that's, that surrounds this cholesterol deposit comes off 
then it allows the bloodstream to react with that, creating almost a, a, a blood clot. It does form a clot. It forms a blood blockade, trying to seal that off, like yes. you would get on a on a skin wound. The difference is that on the inside, there's blood traveling at a at a tremendous speed based on the blood pressure of your heart, right? It's basically so a bullet. 120 million, yeah. Yeah, exactly. it's a bullet so in it's your a body. Bullet. Exactly. And then if that clot is stable, obviously it hangs on. But if it's not stable, it, it flies off. And with it flies all the debris with it. What causes the hemorrhagic um, clots, the hemorrhagic type clots? So the, those are not clots. Those are strokes on the basis of a vascular abnormality. So in the case of hypertension, there's a structural change to the blood vessel. And some people are born with aneurysmal dilatations of blood vessels, and they grow over time. And as they grow, at some point or another, they pop. And so they're usually asymptomatic without you realizing they're sitting there. And then suddenly, one day, something happens, and you, you suddenly have... This is very scary. It is. Because what it's telling me is it's, it sounds like a ticking time bomb. Well, we're all sitting around with a ticking time bomb. Oh, no, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Please. So we're hoping, that we're hoping that we can actually treat it because, as we know, we're not, we don't have any particular method to assess is patients on a, on a wide-scale basis. Okay, that was going to be my, my question. Is there a way of establishing if you have this genetic anomaly that you are prone to, you know, to aneurysms and, and this... Um, this hemorrhagic so it's stroke. When, the f- when the first person presents, so if it's your sister that presents, then we would actually say the family there's, a, needs to there, get there, there's a need to screen the rest of the family because there's a high risk. And generally you'll find that there is a familial tendency in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhages. And uh, sometimes we find them on, on simple screening. So you come in with a headache unrelated to the aneurysmal dilatation because headaches very common, right? right? And we scan you and suddenly we find a little aneurysm. And what we then tend to do is just follow that up with repeated scanning over years. And sometimes they remain very, very um, stable and sometimes they start expanding. And then those ones that are expanding are the ones that are unstable. Those are the ones that we'd want to obviously intervene on before they rupture. All right. So in a nutshell, if any member of your family has died from stroke or has had a stroke, you need to go and get checked out. Absolutely. Because there is obviously a genetic component to it. It's a higher risk. As you age, that's another phenomenon that as we age, that's, uh, you know, so we look at all the usual bad risk factors, high blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, smoking, alcohol consumption. And if you had none of those and you had wings and you'd sprouted wings at the age of 70, guess what? You're at high risk because your age now starts giving a a separate, independent, unmodifiable risk factor based on the fact that as we age, we're all at risk of developing a stroke. Incredible. If you've got any questions, any comments, then uh, you can join the conversation on either SMS 34519 or you can send us a, a WhatsApp message on also text zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. My guest in studio, Dr. Pradeep Rauji. He's a neurologist at Mill Park Hospital, and Dr. Bianca Mentur, medical doctor. And uh, she's one of her projects that she works on is uh, World Stroke Day. I want to find out, what, and she works for Netcare, so I want to find out what uh, what Netcare is doing. But we're going to get to that in a little while. I'm not ignoring you. <laughs> no I just need to understand about stroke. <laughs> How do we know if somebody is having a stroke or if somebody has had a stroke? So there's a huge campaign going out, lovely little uh, animated 
um, segments coming out of all over the world. And in fact, yesterday at the Angels Conference, which is one of the conferences that we we use to propagate just education of um, stroke care in all our hospitals, um, there was a wonderful uh, blurb that was done by one of our comedians uh, from Cape Town. I forget his name. Nick Rubinovitz. Yeah, Nick Rubinovitz. It does a fantastic uh, take on how to actually assess if you're having a stroke and the universal message is fast so if you can remember those then you got to follow those instructions so if you have any patient for that matter who has a sudden facial droop or has speech disturbances we would ask them to raise their arms so if you have a facial droop on the right side and you ask the person to raise their arms and suddenly the right arm starts drooping then you know that there's, that there's some damage there. Then we're dealing with a stroke. So that's the face, the arm, and then the speech. So FAS, facial droop, arm weakness on the same side. And if there's speech, slurring of speech, gobbledygook speech, any speech disturbance, even it seems as though the person's confused, is enough. And then the last is T, which is time. So if you, the sooner you pick that up, the sooner you're going to get medical care and the, the better your chances so of recovery. So it's similar to a heart attack in that way and that Absolutely. you've got that golden hour. Absolutely. And the faster you get to a facility, the greater your chances of being treated and reversing that stroke. You can reverse a stroke? Completely. I didn't know that. And the sooner we do it, the better that chance of recovery is. So if we do a stroke um, patient within the first hour, the chances of them ever having any functional deficits after that are very, very low. That, that must be and a as time goes on, No. And as time Even. goes on, the, 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 the breaking down of that clot becomes more difficult and the, the chances of residual deficit then increases. So the longer you take to get to hospital, the longer we get to, the, the longer we have to kind of reverse, which means more brain damage and which means that you're going to end up with greater disability. So the message should be out there fast, as fast as you can get that person to a health facility so that appropriate treatment can be started. Hmm. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Is there a connection, you know, talking about one side of the face drooping um, during a, you know, a typical kind of stroke, um, is there a connection between stroke and something like Bell's palsy? So that's exactly one of the mimics that we talk about. So if you get the facial droop, but without the arm drift, then that's most likely a Bell's palsy. But still, let's be cautious because I think we've been too lax. And the bottom line is saving brain is vital. And that first hour is absolutely important. So get them into a a health facility as quickly as you possibly can. Let us make that decision. So if there's any facial droop, let's get you to that facility as quickly as you can. Even if there isn't facial uh, arm droop at the time, it might develop later. So as it's evolving, you might just get the facial droop initially and say, ah, well, it's a bowel's palsy, and then two days later, it's a full-blown stroke. Well, it's too late to do anything about it then. Wow. So you need to act. Well, I shouldn't say two days. It's two hours later. Yeah. But you need to get moving. So the sooner you get to a facility, the sooner we can make that assessment, and the sooner we can start treating it. Are there precursors? Are there warning signs? Um, I remember from doing an epileptic show that before somebody has a, a seizure, they get like an aura or there's, there's a feeling that they get that they, that they know that they're going to have something. Is there such an aura prior to a stroke? So there's a whole bunch of older patients who, who have 
or even younger patients sometimes, who have little TIAs. And TIAs stand for transient ischemic attack. So they have a symptom, and within an hour or so, it dissipates, which basically implies that clot, which went up to your brain, was broken down by the force of the blood flow, literally into sheds. So it's, a, it's like a buckshot, and multiple little clots then break up. And as it goes through the system, your own body's ability to break down that clot works and removes the clot. So what happens is you get the arm and the face weakness, slurring of speech, and what happens is that within that hour, your own system, by the virtue of the, the, the clot being friable, it breaks open and the body cleans it out, and within an hour, it dissipates. So those are transient ischemic attacks. They still need to be treated, though. And in fact, those are like little volcanic eruptions. The first one that comes out as a plume of smoke the next one's going to be the full eruption. So we want to evacuate you to a facility, or if you're in a volcanic zone, we want to evacuate you out of that zone. How do you, tre- how do you treat stroke? So there's a few methods. The one is the chemical method, which is to use an enzyme to break down the clot. So that works in some cases and not in all cases. And the reason for that is that some of the clot is organized and has a great deal of fatty deposits in it, fibrin strands, almost, almost as though it's been anchored to that particular clot or to that atheromatous plaque. So what happens is that it has a wonderful framework of cement and steel, and so it's harder to break down. And in that particular case, we would use a mechanical method. And there the the clot is usually very large and is sitting in a very large vessel as well. And you need to go in like they do with the coronary angiography. They go in and they do it in a cath lab as well. In a cath lab. It has to be sucked out or it has to be pulled out with a wire. Those are the two mechanical methods to remove clot. Isn't, techn- isn't technology just a wonder? Unbelievable. How you can change somebody's destiny in such a meaningful way. Absolutely. And, and give you, them back a life. And you must remember that the biggest issue for us is not about, about the fact that we can treat the stroke. The consequences to society at large are what we need to remember, is that once you have a patient with a stroke, not only are they losing their job, their income, their family support has to now work around getting them sorted out. So many people have to be employed or family members have to leave work. The societal costs and the healthcare costs then actually increases. So as a society, if we can reduce that burden, we're making a great impact into generally the health economics of our country, which means better healthcare, better better recovery, better productivity, and everybody a society is able to function better. So at the end of the day, it's not just about the individual. It's There's also a greater societal cost that we're trying to achieve as well. Incredible. What does it, uh, what does it feel like to have a stroke? Is it painful? Well, the most important thing to remember is that when it bursts, when the blood vessels burst, yes, it's very painful. So most of the patients will say, oh, they've gotten a headache suddenly because that blood vessel bursts. And it's bursting at 122, 180 millimeters of mercury, which is a massive force, explosive in nature almost. You know, it's being, and, and some, of the, some of the types of strokes, which is, which is regarded as subarachnoid hemorrhage, one of the things that, that people describe it as is a, is a kick out of the blue, a mule kicked, out, kicked you in the head out of the blue. So that's how intense that force can feel like. Gosh. So the hemorrhagic types tend to be very, very painful. They then collapse on the scene. It's very dramatic. And as they bleed, they basically could pass on right in front of your eyes. 
So those are the big hemorrhagic types, and they're very, very catastrophic. Is there anything that we can do if we were on the scene? So thankfully, they only make up 15%, so they're not as severe. The only thing we should do is get that person to a health facility as quickly as possible. Yeah. So call the ambulance, get the, the paramedic teams, and evacuate that patient as quickly as possible. And most importantly, obviously, do the simple basics. Put them on their side, which is the safety side. Hold on to them and just ensure that you, you wait with the person while the ambulance arrives. It's almost like treating an epileptic attack, similar sort of protocol. The ischemic strokes generally tend not to be painful, and so most patients don't even realize. You know, it's like mm. sometimes they walk into the bathroom and suddenly they see there's a droop, and, and that's it. And some people have a lot more disability. They try to get out of bed, and they fall out of the bed. And that's a more common type in the elderly subjects. But in in essence, it's not very painful. From what age would you say um, stroke are the stroke risk groups? I know you did say earlier, as you get older and older. But from what age should we be more aware? So there's, there's there's no real age. You know, you can get stroke in young children. And you can get strokes in, in the elderly. Obviously, strokes in the elderly is far more common. So we, we, don't, we don't particularly say there's one particular age group. But when we look at the peak, it's definitely from the 50s onwards. And that's when all your diabetes, hypertension starts creeping in. Prior to that, you can get young strokes. And those are usually patients that don't realize that they have cardiac valvular disease. And we see that commonly in our African communities where they may have had rheumatic fever, no access to medical care, and suddenly at the age of 20 they've got you know, valves that are leaky or they have valves that are infected. And as a result, those then become a source for embolic um, phenomena and then end up with young stroke. So young stroke versus old stroke. So they're blood much less common maybe 10 to 20% of the population, but they're there. They're definitely there. It would be so wonderful if there was a way to screen for strokes. It's always, it's always the ideal, and if we can get um, you know, screening done, it, and, and, and the bo- bottom so line is... So is there such a thing as screening for strokes? So the bottom line is, the one thing that we've realized as well is that about 20 years ago, a colleague of ours did a huge study in Kharankua, which is the, the, the community attached to the Madunsa University, and at that stage, the one thing that he documented was a high turnover of hemorrhagic strokes, undiagnosed hypertension. Wow. So in our African communities, poor access to health care, no, no... Access to information, I think. Information, is also a whole variety of phenomena, right? And 20 years later, recently, a colleague of ours who has now taken over the department did a similar study, and the numbers have come down. And the only thing we can attribute that to is the fact that we're producing more medical students who stay on in the country Hmm. and service our community. So if our communities could be screened more regularly, so, you know, you get to your GP and he gives you a blood pressure check, which should be done on every examination, and he picks up hypertension, and we start treatment, immediately you're reducing the risk factors for both heart disease and stroke. So by definition, if we get basic primary health care out there, we will be screening patients. Those are at risk of developing all vascular div- diseases that would affect you later That's so on positive. Life. That is so positive that, that it is coming down. Definitely. And it's amazing. It really is amazing that we are getting to that point. Yeah. Look, 15%. What, what percentage of our population do we know um, are at risk of stroke? I mean, do we have such stats? You well, know, out of 54 million people... <coughs> 
you know, how many strokes, how many people have strokes so a year. So let's look at the global burden. So if, if your global burden of disease, and we look at the, the top three, the first is obviously heart disease. Second is cancer and third is stroke. So if you're looking at, at, at proportions, we're looking at a large number of patients in, in, in our country that are at risk of developing stroke. And as I said, it has no, it has no specific agenda. It takes all of us. All humanity is affected equally. So I think the burden is much higher than we anticipate. We're lucky that we have amazing health services in the private sector and in the public sector, and I think we should be accessing them all with the intention of getting better, better health care. One of the things we were discussing just yesterday is that the health department has, at this stage, decided that there's not enough funding for the national health uh, program that they, were th- that they were thinking about, the NHI. And my was, impression... Was, uh, uh, look, it's only taken 57 years to implement. So Whatever the case may be, <laughs> if, we could get, if we could get the health department, if we could get the health department to agree to the PMB conditions, the hypertensions, the diabetes, the cholesterols, and the usual stuff that the health, uh, private health insurance companies are obliged to provide for. Yes. If they would provide those, those medicines through a commercial chain, so the clicks, the discams, and these other pharmacies would be allowed to dispense them at a single exit price because we've now got that right. If they would actually do that and implement that, and get rid of the system that exists currently. where They just can't cope with volumes. Exactly. So yeah. if we could get all our population accessed in that particular way. That would be phenomenal. We would bring down a lot of the, the crisis we see today. So I think there's still lots to be done from the public health sector side. And in particular, public-private um, relationships could be strengthened. And if we could do that, I mean, we're well on the way to getting amazing healthcare for our population without waiting for this NHI, which was just and basically... a model that can be implemented in all the different health categories. And right. I think and that that could be incredible. If we could get away from party political agendas and, and getting garnering votes for the ANC by dangling a fish that was called NHI, if we could look at proper programs, we would actually achieve a greater healthcare oh, that would be accessibility wonderful. and availability for our population. But unfortunately... They work in their sphere and we work in our sphere and it's really yeah, unacceptable. Yeah, it's a silo mentality. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so sad because we can't have that in a third world developing country like ours. Yeah, we've got to, we've got to use our available resources and That's be, right. be dynamic. We're a young country. And we've got to, you know, and there's, and there's no... We're a young population. And there's no shortage of entrepreneurs and people that are willing to actually make the system work. And people and with ideas and the energy to drive it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's yeah, 47 years they've been trying to implement the NHI <laughs> and the National Health Insurance. Um, my guest, Dr. Pradeep Rauji, he's a neurologist at Netcare Mill Park Hospital, and uh, also Dr. Bianca Mentour, who's a medical doctor, and uh, she's been doing lots of wonderful things for uh, for Netcare for the World Stroke Day. Hello. You've, Hello. you've been sitting there so quietly. Ever so patiently. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting to learn about exceptionally, stroke. Exceptionally. Exceptionally. <laughs> so um, can we talk a little bit about rehabilitation, or is, is it still your still your field, Dr. Raji? Well, we, we have two components to the, uh, to, to the rehabilitation. It's early rehabilitation mm-hmm. and then the late rehabilitation. So I just want to give you an example of what I remember as my first patient at Baragwanath. Stroke patient comes in, laying there, hundreds of patients everywhere. 
And the fear, and, I can imagine and, the fear. And just being able to get water to this patient was in itself a nightmare. So I started devising some, some things, took a drip set and turned it around, put some water, put it into the bottom of a water bottle so she could at least get access to water. Wow. So that is basically the immediate issues that we talk about. Then when I started treating stroke 15 years ago, you see a patient, and in those days we only had the chemicalytic uh, method. You see a patient comes in, with lies them, and within an hour there's no neurology completely reverses and within two days the patient leaves the hospital not having to go to a rehabilitation facility that would be the ideal goal right i right. mean that is Absolutely. exactly what you want right so we die and that's we, what hospitals do so we lies, the, we, we lies the clot the next day the cardiologist sees it says yes definitely atrial fibrillation or whatever the underlying mechanism is start the patient on secondary prevention and they're off that's the end of their the journey currently if you come in too late, your journey starts with acute rehabilitation, which is waiting for the person to recover from the stunned brain defect, which is when the stroke happens, there's still a lot of changes happening in that brain. There's a lot of in instability within that hemodynamic phenomenon of the brain, and they can go either way. They can either go the route of meeting their maker, or we kind of get them through all the various complications of that early immobility phase of infection, etc., and then they're off to the rehab stage of their life but that first bit can be quite critical and ideally we would like to completely sidestep that whole path and sure. get them right out of that rehabilitation process so the immediate rehabilitation happens in hospital and then from there they move on to the chronic rehabilitation which is basically to get them back to a level of functioning which allows them to at least go home and do for themselves in their home environment get back to work depends on the, the extent of disability but all of those are part of the, the, the integral program that is run at the net carrier facilities. got an unsigned uh, message here, which I'll read to you in a minute. I just want to let you know that you can also join this conversation. My guest is Dr. Pradeep Rauji, who's a neurologist at Netcare Millpark Hospital. And um, how you get a message through, you can send a WhatsApp on 61 one oh one nine or you can SMS us at a charge of one Rand fifty on three four five one nine. So unsigned uh hi doctor and Kathy, can you identify? I can't see all of a person's face. It's black and like a hole in their fo face as it shimmers. Uh what is this? It lasts for more or less fifteen minutes and can be accompanied by a headache afterwards. Thanks so much. So there's, there's two things that pop into mind. The fact that there's a negative phenomenon of black mm. is always suggestive of something a little bit more eerie. So before the black, there may be a lot of color. So <laughs> I just want to remind you that in migraine, which is another mimic, yes. we can get a whole variety of neurological symptomatology. But the particular ones are the migraine with aura, which is the type I think your, 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 your caller is asking about. And they would develop a scotomata, which is usually a fluorescent, colorful um, display in the visual field. Sometimes people describe it as a fortification spectrum and a whole variety of other phenomenon which then get, which then get transferred or moves on into a negative phenomenon which then can be associated with neurological symptoms. If it lasts between 5 and 30 minutes, it's generally regarded as a migraine aura 
And if it's associated thereafter with a pulsatile headache, then it's most likely a migraine. But if it starts off with negative phenomena, like a visual loss, like she's describing... Where you can't see part of what you're looking at. That's right. So it could be one of two things. One could be a retinal or visual ocular phenomenon, or it could be from the occipital cortex. Either way, it needs to be seen to if it's a purely negative phenomenon. However, if it's both a positive and negative phenomenon, then it's most likely migraine. All right. Either way, you should probably just go and see. Haven't seen. Too. Yeah, go and go and see a neurologist. You know, call up Netcare, go and see Dr. Raji. Or could you? Would you start with your GP? Because start with your GPs GP. GPs today have become more of your healthcare managers. That's right. You they know, your, your central source. point. They are the primary yeah. source into the system. Yes. Yeah. And we should always be more available via our GP for our GP practices. The, there's always that issue about availability of, of, of GP practices, but I think our city is very well staffed, so I don't think that there's an issue getting access to community is. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> My guest, Dr. Pradeep Rauji, and uh, he's a neurologist at Mill Park Hospital, at Netcare Mill Park Hospital, and also joining us, who's been so quiet. <laughs> she's just looking very, very pretty. Uh, Dr. Bianca Mentour, she's a yes. medical doctor, but she also works for, uh, she works for Netcare and uh, what what sort of programs, what sort of support are are there um, for victims of stroke or patients? Are they patients or victims? Survivors. Survivors, Survivors or individuals affected by stroke. Um, yeah, so at Netcare it's very similar to kind of the conversation that's been unfolding. We've recognized the importance of GPs and community-based practices and healthcare workers in not only the recognition of a stroke but managing a patient and his or her family in the period following a stroke. So what we've actually done, uh, I'll elaborate the program that we have overall, but just to kind of touch on where our focus was for World Stroke Day, uh, which was on the 29th of October, so last Monday, we devised quite an extensive program that targeted our Medicross practices, which is where our GPs sit, as well as our newly acquired Akeso practices. So Netcare recently acquired an 11-facility psychiatric care group uh, with the name of Akeso. I know, they're fantastic. Also, yes, they they've also got Fantastic. GPs, they've got psychiatrists and psychologists. So we decided this year to really target our community-based practices to not only raise awareness of stroke symptoms, very similarly to what Dr. Rauji just uh, elaborated on with the FAST uh, technique or FAST uh, acronym, we kind of got the word out there around symptoms to look out for in a suspected stroke. We also targeted our communities that are around our Medicross practices because that's often where the challenge comes in. There's a delay between the symptom onset to healthcare being sought. And the sooner we can close that delay, the more likely we are to achieve better outcomes in our patients. So not only do we want our communities to know what to look out for and where to go when they have these symptoms, but also our GPs to know when these patients present with symptoms, what the most appropriate hospital for them would be. So we did, dropped off a little package with all of our GPs that had the closest net care hospital, most appropriate net care hospitals emergency department details, as well as the closest state facility. So our view is very much that we'd like to contribute to health in the country. It's not a matter of only increasing business and in inverted commas at net care. We've definitely got a role or we've got the opportunity to really seriously impact the health of us as a society at large. And we take that quite seriously. So I think you already have. I think yeah. that you, that I net care so. as a group certainly has yeah. had a 
tremendous impact. So in addition to sort of the, the packages that we had dropped off at every one of our GPs, we also had a couple of activations and awareness days. We had one in Joburg, one in Pretoria, one Cape Town, one Durban, our sort of very high volume Medicross GP practices. And those range from mall screenings in KZN. Our That's GP, a brilliant Yeah, idea. our GP that practice went brilliant. to Hayfields Mall, screened patients, glucose and, and blood pressure to kind of pick up any risk factors. And then, of course, it's the closest GP practice to the, the, the mall is net is made across a hayfield. So there's kind of a port of call for that to be followed up on because it's it's one thing to kind of recognize the risk factors, but the difference really comes in when you treat those risk factors. So that's what we did in KZN. In Joburg, we did quite a bit of staff training at our Medicross practices um, just to kind of get, we exposed our Medicross nursing staff to the same training that our acute hospital nursing staff get, which range from stroke recognition to how to best treat a patient who presents with acute symptoms and to managing patients after. Because naturally, as we said, our GPs are such a vital port of call. When someone is unsure of what's ailing them, that's the place they're going to go to. They might not always end up at the emergency department doors. So to really empower our GPs and the nursing staff that work with them to be aware of what to look out for. And then lastly, in Cape Town and Pretoria, we had, again, hypertension and blood pressure screening uh, and blood glucose screenings in the foyer and the reception of our Medicross practices. Um, So just really to create awareness in our communities that when in doubt, we're there for them. They're welcome to come to us if there's any uncertainty as to what might be troubling them. Or as Dr. Had mentioned, if you just want to know what your risk factors are and what you have present, to kind of go for screening and just be better informed about your health status. If uh, if somebody wanted to make contact mm. on an ongoing basis with uh, I don't know, perhaps someone's got a family member, right? Um, and we want to contact a stroke support organisation. Who would we contact? Would we contact Netcare, or is there a stroke body in South Africa who who would really facilitate that? So there are actually several stroke bodies in the country, uh, which does make it a bit challenging for the general public, because I can assure you a quick Google search, (laughs) exactly, a quick Google search of sort of stroke support is going to toss up three pages of answers. Um, So I can at least give you insight into who exists and at least to my knowledge what it is that they do. So the South African Stroke Society is the body that NETCARE is working quite closely with, and they are a body that's made up of practicing neurologists and uh, members of other allied disciplines, so your occupational therapists, speech therapists, physiotherapists and the like. Why, where they don't necessarily offer ongoing sort of intimate support for survivors of stroke and the families that are affected by stroke, we're working with them to improve and um, externally verify the standard of care that we provide to patients. And as uh, Dr. Raji had mentioned, that also includes rehab and sort of ongoing support. As NECA, we've sort of picked up that mantle and, as I said, kind of opted to go community-wise, primary care-wise, that if there is a patient or a survivor of a stroke or an affected family in a community with a Medicross practice, to go to the Medicross practice, they often have nursing staff members as well as other allied disciplines, depending on the practice. So if the, the support that's required is physical ongoing rehab, that would be an excellent port of call. Another organization that exists is the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and they tend to focus predominantly on aware drives and marketing around, as we've said, the importance of knowing what the risk factors are and knowing what your health status is. Um, there isn't truly a coherent ongoing support structure. So what we can best do at Netcare is kind of start to create our own. We're very fortunate that we own the full spectrum from 911 emergency medical services all the way through to Netcare rehabilitation and ACESO. So the focus that we had was to get the word out there that we've got facilities where 
we can offer ongoing support, particularly in the period post-stroke. I mean, I can't imagine the challenge that comes with adapting to, in inverted commas, a new normal, whether that's physical or emotional. Well, the new normal is that we all pop pills all the time. That is, yeah, that is, that's definitely a feature of sort of modern <laughs> society. But the best we can do is ensure that the knowledge exists, that we've got not only physical acute rehabilitation, inpatient and outpatient, but we've also got psychiatric care. Um, for families that are struggling with uh, uh, the Huge. new... the impact on families must stroke. be massive. Absolutely, or for an individual who really is grappling with difficulties of readjusting to their life post-stroke, we do have options available that offer extensive support and are located across the country. Okay, thank you very, very much, Bianca. Um, Message that's just come through from Danny, and uh, Danny's got a question for you, Dr. Raji. Is it possible that a temporary, temporary blocked vein or artery could cause a TIA? Uh, my wife, uh, my wife has had several TIAs caused, we think, by her falling asleep in a certain position, lying on her left side. Is it necessary to rush her to a hospital each time this happens? She's extremely reluctant to go to hospital each time. She's had about six to eight TIAs. What is a TIA? Morning, Danny. Thank you for that question. So, if it is that she's having a particular blood vessel that occludes in a particular position, then there's something that needs to be done about that blood vessel. So yes, she needs to be taken immediately, not not wait for the next TI. Take it, take her now while she isn't relying on that left side. Have it seen to because clearly there's something going on with that blood vessel that requires a, a definitive decision making with regards to uh, medical therapy. And yes, I mean, I think to wait for the next one is, is I think, uh, foolhardy. It's like asking a vol- you know, people in volcanic areas, that you're knowing full well that the volcano is going to erupt. No, it's Pompeii. Yeah, it's Pompeii. So, <laughs> yeah. so let's get moving. You know, let's not, let's not sit around waiting for the next one. All right. What is a TIA? So that's a transient ischemic attack that I told you about. Okay. So that's usually, with the little volcanoes going off all over your yeah, head exactly. all the time. And, and, and the clot then dissipates. But the point is, or it may be that in this particular case, the blood vessels occluded and there's low flow to that zone giving rise to the TI. So she wakes up, but I think it needs to be assessed and we shouldn't wait for the next one. The answer right. is get, get to a facility as quickly as possible. Danny, I hope you heard that. And uh, yeah, go and get your wife seen too. Dragging. To the car, kicking and screaming, <laughs> if necessary. Worthy, exactly. <laughs> With or without a, a consent, yeah. Yes, exactly. Just go and get it sorted out. Is there any connection between uh, stroke and Alzheimer's? Well, the biggest concern for us all is that when we talk about Alzheimer's, you know, we don't like to look at Alzheimer's as a, as a single entity, right? So we talk about, in this era, we talk about, we talk about, Cognitive impairment, big word. So, so there's obviously a decline in cognitive function, and we call that cognitive impairment. And we get mild, moderate, and severe. And then we have a whole variety of other symptomatology that goes with it. And during life, we can't say you got Alzheimer's. We say possible or probable Alzheimer's because we haven't yet looked at your brain under a microscope. So when we look at brains under the microscope, we find that a lot of patients have a variety of pathological entities going on at the same time. And one of the common ones is a mix between Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. So little strokes all over the place wow. with Alzheimer's. So the problem with stroke is that once you, you had your big stroke or a minor stroke, the risk factors have to be treated. And if we don't start treating those, you're going to accumulate further disease. So it's like saying, well, we've unblocked the drain today, 
tomorrow it's going to be perfect. It's not the case. It's usually going to accumulate if we keep dumping the same rubbish into that same. You can't change 50 years of bad lifestyle. That's right. Overnight. So as if that blood vessel you know. has been occluded over time, we've got to start using strategies to start reversing that process. With that comes accumulative injury to the brain. And with accumulated injury, essentially what's going to happen is your memory is going to start failing you. So, yes, there will be cognitive impairment if we don't treat those things. If it's a big stroke, you can have cognitive immediately, cognitive imme- impairment immediately. So if your dominant hemisphere is affected, you might not be able to speak again. And that's significant damage. I mean, there's nothing worse than not being able to communicate with other people. So cognitive impairment starts the minute that first stroke starts. And so that's all the more reason why we need to start looking at reversing the things that we can. Hmm. Is there a connection between uh, stroke and epilepsy? Yes, there is. So if you've had a stroke and everything's gone well and you've been to rehabilitation and three months later suddenly your husband or your wife starts having a seizure in bed or you notice that they've got weakness all over again and we rush them off to the, the nearest facility and there's no new stroke, it's basically because the patient's had a stroke in their sleep, I had a, a seizure in their sleep, and that's scar tissue that you that you have left behind as the remnant of the stroke event is prone to developing epileptic activity, which results in them having seizures thereafter. Hmm. So okay. any scar on the brain, whether it's a traumatic scar or a ischemic stroke scar or a hemorrhagic scar can give rise to seizures, yes, so there is a link. Not everybody will develop seizures, and so we don't put every single stroke victim or sufferer or survivor onto anti-epileptics. Some we do and some we don't, and not all of them will need anti-epileptics for the rest of their life. What other diseases are stroke, is stroke related to? Does it have a relationship with? So the, the, the few things that we are, I just want to raise is binge drinking, and we have lots of those in our society because we have communities of people that spend weekends in in the local shabins and so you find especially in our, our poorer communities you find in winter time binge drinkers tend to end up with with huge intracerebral hemorrhages and that's because of the binge drinking phenomenon with undiagnosed hypertension which predisposes you to to developing a hemorrhagic it, stroke is that because alcohol dilates your dilates right. your blood vessels that's right and so as a result they get much greater risk uh, associated with with the binge drinking. So that's one of the things. So besides the usual ones, smoking is very, very important and we must get we must start getting that message out there because most people believe vaping is safer and really I'm not so sure that that is it's just it's just another delivery mechanism. Absolutely right. The, and so Yeah, the addiction remains to nicotine. That's right. And so the bottom line is we need to stop smoking as a society we need that as a, an important aside. And then Obviously, health screens. So important that people go for health screens because you'll be surprised. A lot of times you go in for something completely unrelated and the doctor describes a genetic phenomenon. So, for example, you might have a particular body habitus or you might have a rash around your truncal zone and those can increase your risk of developing strokes because you have a genetic vascular abnormality which is manifesting with other phenotypical measurements that the doctor might see in you. So those are all important. So, you know, the, as I said, the, fa- the primary source to, to, to be able to assess patients and risk factors are going to be your general practitioners. And we've all been taught this at medical school. And we're all out there waiting for your, for your, for your 
service so that we can actually help you along the way. Dr. Raji, we've got to wrap up. Um, thank you very, very much. But uh, just before you go, can you give us just one takeaway? If there's one thing that you would like our listeners to know from this hour, what is that? So the only thing that we all want to propagate is the, the that acronym FAST. That is our agenda. You've got to be there quickly, act fast, don't forget it. It's face, um. arm, speech, and time. So the faster you get to a health facility, the faster your chances of recovering, and the greater your chance of having a complete recovery. So that's the only message that I want each and every one of us to, to, to transmit. Thank you very, very much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And uh, Bianca Mentor, um, thank you very much. What would you like to uh, to leave us with? I think I definitely echo Dr. Raji's sentiments. And the only other thing I would add is an emphasis really on awareness. So very few of us know what underlying conditions we have without actively make, taking the steps to evaluate what you know, we're sitting with, what time bombs we're sitting on. So to really just encourage active steps towards approaching a health facility, approaching your GP to be screened, know your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your glucose, and to stop smoking. You know, to, so the, the quicker we're aware of the risk factors that we have, the better we can treat them and the, the less the impact they could have down the line on our lives and our, our livelihoods. And apparently drinking also. And drinking also. Let me not leave that off the list. (laughs) Binge drinking. (laughs) drinking, Binge drinking. You know what? Today it's like one, you know, one glass of wine will be, will do your heart great and tomorrow it will kill you. So (laughs) I think we can all agree two bottles might do that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very, very much for joining us. And uh, thank you so much for getting in touch, for staying tuned for uh, Diskem Medical Monday. If you've just tuned in, you have missed a fantastic, fantastic and very interesting talk. So uh, get to highfm.com and you'll be able to access the podcast. They're going to edit it now. They're going to put it up on uh, on highfm.com. Until next week, God bless. Stay safe. Bye. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.